The scripture reading today is from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them for truly, I say to you. Until heaven and earth pass away, not any I order not a doubt will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and Teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to God. Amen. It's been beautiful to have our um, kids read for us over the last several weeks as we've kind of looked at several passages from what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's um, a section where Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, takes a moment to come and sit on a mountainside as people came up to hear him and preach. Uh, a sermon that was probably about 12 to 15 minutes long, which most people are like, yeah, that's a good one for me. Um, and, um, and they really came up on that mountainside to ask a question. Who is this guy? You know, he starts talking about things like you just heard the law and the prophets, and that would perk their ears up, but their main question would be, what are you going to do with it? Who are you? What kind of authority do you speak with? I, I, my parents were here some time ago, and I remember going to Cheekwood. If you've been to Cheekwood before, if you haven't, you need to go. It's a beautiful uh, plantation home. They've just made into a beautiful botanical garden and museum and all sorts of things. We went to, saw an exhibit that was going on, and I thought, well, this might be interesting for them to, to see. And it was called, How Do You See God? I was like, okay, let's try this out. So we went there, and <clears throat> um, it was very interesting. It actually turned out to be quite creepy. Um, we walked through the halls of the, the home, which was, was be, is beautiful, and all of a sudden you see just different pieces of art that were reflecting how people actually view God. And so one was uh, a medicine cabinet, right, just a, with a glass front. You could see all the little bottles inside. One was uh, a bunch of plastic fish nailed to a board. Uh, one was an odd thing. It was like a video uh, on a television screen where you heard like a gunshots, and then just people standing, and they all just fell over. It was kind of strange. One was, this is probably the, where the creepy came in, closer to the end when I was walking out, it was, a, it was basically a balloon uh, suspended with this sheet pulled around it, and a, and a, a video thing, you know, <laughs> like putting a face on the front of it talking to you, and uh, it, it really freaked me out. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I thought I was in a different house than I was before. Uh, but but it, was, it was interesting to me, what I found interesting about it was viewing, okay, what part of God do these people think 
right? What is the, the characteristic, what is the thing about God that, that each of these artists take and they really are kind of uh, highlighting, kind of like you would on a Mac, uh, you know, at the bottom with the icons when you scroll your arrow over it and it expands. That's kind of what they're doing. They're taking a char- one characteristic, one part of God and expanding it. How do we show it? But when, I want to tell you, when Jesus came up on this mountainside and he starts talking about the law and the prophets, they have in their mind this question of, okay, what are you going to say, Jesus? What are you going to highlight? What are you going to do with those things? Are you going to get rid of them? Are you saying that you're better than they are? And the question that they had and the question that we have is, are we taking an aspect of God? Are we taking a characteristic of him and maybe expanding it? Maybe you take a part of who he is and it is all of who he is. But Jesus is saying the story of who he is in the story of the Bible itself, what I'm reading from, what we're teaching from, is actually much bigger. You cannot scroll over it necessarily and take one part and make that God. There's a story of all of it. And here's what's amazing. Jesus says he comes to fulfill it. That it is almost even dangerous to take a part of him and just say, you're just this. That's what the Pharisees actually wanted to do to Jesus. They said, oh, you're one of those people. You're, you're going to do away with the law. You're gonna, you think you're better than Sundays, they said. You have a demon. You can heal. They would take aspects of Jesus and try and tear him apart. But Jesus is saying, who I am and what the Bible's about is a greater story. And how you view God is how you view me, is what Jesus says. If you want a crux, if you want to understand what the entire Sermon on the Mount, the entire Bible is about, this is your passage. We should actually have probably like four sermons on this, but I'm trying to squeeze it into one. Sorry, it won't be 12 minutes, but it'll be a little longer. And, And here's what's powerful about it. You and I, like those artists, may actually view God in a very myopic, small way. This passage is to explode your categories and say, God is much bigger, Jesus is much greater, and you cannot take one aspect, one element of him, and highlight it and make that your God. Because you cannot get your arms around it. As my former campus minister, when I was in college, used to say to me, he said, the moment you think you have your arms wrapped around who Jesus is, the good news is the moment you lost it, is the moment it's gone. So we're going to look at this today. We're going to look at two parts of it, really. Just we're going to look at our story and Jesus' story, just those two things. Our story in this and Jesus' story. You know, when Jesus begins with this, he says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know, the great thing about this is Jesus begins to say, there's this law. And the people on the mountain would have said, okay, I'm kind of familiar with that. But when he says none of it's going to be wiped away all, it will, all, until it's all accomplished, that would have really drawn out these people. Now think about that. If you're here this morning and maybe you've said, okay, I'm following Jesus. Maybe you've come to church for a long time. The law plays probably a very interesting place in your life, in your story. 
it has a lot to do with your history. It has a lot to do with your makeup, right? Who you are. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're kind of dabbling with Christianity, maybe you, you've kind of come out of a scenario where, well, I've been burned by the church or cynical about it or something of that, that nature. The law may even play another part for you. The law and prophets, when you hear that, you're like, oh, until all is accomplished. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought the Bible is about. Me just following a bunch of rules. Me just, you know, making sure I tick off the right things and then, you know, it'll be accomplished, Right? What is Jesus really getting at? He's saying, and he's uses these in these iota or a dot. These are like the smallest little pointings on, on, on Hebrew language. That if you put like, it's almost like a little apostrophe. If you put that there, it changes a, a meaning of a word completely. Some of you may have studied these, these languages like Greek and Hebrew. And if you do, particularly in Hebrew, it can be very, very difficult when these little pointings, if you accidentally drop your pen on something, it can change the word to something else. That's what Jesus is saying, those smallest little bitty things, all of that will be accomplished. And when you hear that, it may go, ooh. Some of you may have a reaction to that by saying, gosh, the law will be accomplished? What, what? Especially when he goes on, whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these, and whoever teaches others to do the same, it's like, how many of us have really relaxed the law? You know, when Jesus is talking, he's talking about the Old Testament, and maybe you're one of those people that when you, you talk about the Bible, you probably skip over. Maybe the laws in the Old Testament, you kind of think, well, I don't really need those. I remember hearing a pastor ages ago when I was in college say, don't worry about the Old Testament, it's not a big deal. You just really need to focus on the new. And as much as some of us may go, ooh, that doesn't sound right. Well, how many of us live that way? We look at maybe parts of the Old Testament as, oh, yeah, and we skip over the things in books, maybe aside from the Ten Commandments, where we think, that law doesn't really pertain to me. But think about it. How many of us have oxen, okay, We don't have a lot of oxen falling in ditches, okay? So when you read that law, what do I do with that kind of thing? There was a thing called the prescriptive law and descriptive law in the Old Testament. The prescriptive law was the Ten Commandments. It was prescribed to everyone who's a follower of God. Those ten things, boom, 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 boom. Those are for all. And what happened was there was the description of that law, which you read in the books that you and I may skip over often in Leviticus, Deuteronomy. You know, when you start reading the Bible, maybe some of you are, this is probably around that time where you've said, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and you've gotten probably about this point to Numbers, Leviticus, and you're like, I'm kind of sick of that. Can I just skip to Matthew? You know, uh, can I... That's what, those things are the descriptive law. They're taking the prescription of the Ten Commandments and double-clicking and making those descriptive in in action of where they live that day. Now, it doesn't mean those things are not helpful for us. We just cast them out. But it does mean we should take the Ten Commandments and we should even look at the descriptive law that is placed in the Bible and say, wait, I may not have an oxen, but what is this really showing me in wisdom of how I live in accordance to my neighbor or to my resources or to my city? What does that mean for me? Are we relaxing it? And are we teaching other people to do the same? Because we may think history is not that big of a deal to us. Well, how does it apply to us now? What does, 
But listen, there's a historian named John Lucas that said this. He reflected much about the past and he argued that history is not a, a science with merely dates, times, and places, but a form of thought and a way of knowing human experience. History is a personal and participatory experience. We do not study the past as detached observers, but as persons who are a part of what the past has called into being. And that's exactly what the Old Testament should do. We should observe the Old Testament that it is a part of this makeup. It's a part of our story. It draws us in. It says, it says you're in this. This is what's amazing about Jesus. It says He moves from fulfillment and accomplishment, those words, to us being a part of it. And that's a powerful thing. That the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, should be a part of our story. You know, if you read, uh, it, it, many of you may watch Netflix. A lot of you watch Netflix. Um, I'm a Netflix guy. It, it's become kind of like, um, you know, one of those things at McDonald's. Or what are you drinking, a Coke? You know, even if you're drinking Dr. Pepper or something else, you always say, Netflix has kind of become that thing. We all say, hey, I was, I'll Netflixed it. You know, now there's commercials out about people going, You've got to watch that. You've got to watch that. Have you seen that? Those are hilarious because it's all we do. We go, what have you watched lately? Watch this. Well, Netflix did their own um, kind of study about viewers. And the reason, if you've seen or if you've watched Netflix, if you go on there and they have their own shows, why they list shows out straight down, why they don't put one, one out at a time, because now we're all spoiled, Right? Many of you may watch shows on regular television now and you watch one and you're like, gosh, I gotta wait a week, you know? Netflix is our, our you know, drug of choice now. So Netflix puts them all out now and they did some research on percentages of people that love to binge watch, Netflix did. And the percentages are off the charts. That most people, when they watch any show, easily watch average of two to three shows at a time. So you'll watch one and you can't stop. You gotta watch another one. Remember, there's a, uh, all, it's all about who we are. And this is what they came to the conclusion of. Listen to what they said. I love how they describe how we are and who we are as story watchers. They said that <clears throat> in a highly fragmented 140 character, 24-7 world, viewers are seeking out longer form of complex storytelling. Th that is what they came to. What a beautiful beautifully put way of describing what the Bible actually is. Do you see what we're missing when we go to the Bible and look at it as these one chunks at a time? What we're missing is, is we're reading the Bible what's called synchronically. We're reading it in little topics or in little bite-sized bits, but we're, if we read it diachronically, which means across a full form, the law and the prophets are building. It's like a glorious preview that we get to watch over and over and over. That every part of it is pointing to something else. It's that our story is a part of a larger story building on itself called redemptive history. It's not just history, and that's what this historian earlier was saying. It's redemptive history. There's a bigger picture going on. Something that's to be fulfilled, something that's to be accomplished. That our story feels lacking often, doesn't it? Doesn't it often feel like when we want fulfillment or accomplishment, it comes very rarely? <laughs> Even thinking about fulfillment, when was the last time you actually felt fulfilled and felt as though you're satisfied? 
and also that it stayed and didn't go away. Fulfillment is elusive, isn't it? Fulfillment and accomplishment are things that we find very rarely. And when we do, they seem fleeting. We want to be fulfilled. But when we approach the law and the prophets in our story as something that is rote, something that's just, okay, I gotta keep this, I gotta keep that, we're missing the bigger picture of our story being a part of a larger story. Because what the law does is doesn't it force you to see yourself for who you really are and your needs? Because many of you may be here too and saying the law, I love the law. I have relationships built on the law. And I have to ask you, what is it like relating to you in your story? If your story is all law, don't you find yourself either in despair or in arrogance that you can keep the law? You know, when the Allied forces finally, you know, broke all of the, you know, chains of uh, the, the Nazi war camps and went in and actually were doing work to clean them. And they went into the surrounding villages during that time after the war and actually asked the villagers and townspeople to march through. They actually said, you're going to march through these camps with us. There's that documentation. You can actually see footage from this. And as they're walking through the camps with handkerchiefs over their faces, some vomiting, some crying, some not believing what they're seeing, some seeing what they didn't want to believe was happening. The Allied forces were genius because they wanted these people to see what they were denying the whole time was going on right next door to them. My friends, that is what the law does to us. It forces us to march through our hearts and to see the things that we do not want to see. And yet we need it. We have to have it. We have to see it. We have to march through it over and over to see the reality of what's really there. Because it is there. That is our story. What Jesus does here is he says, "For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. On one hand, he says, you've got to keep the law. On the other hand, he says, your righteousness needs to be better than these people that hold the law so well, they even made laws to keep the law. Your righteousness has to be better than them. What in the world do you do with that? How does that make sense? <laughs> and this is how our story must weave into Jesus' story. How Jesus himself says, I have come not to abolish it, to fulfill it. See, those people on the mountainside would probably ask one of two questions. They're probably asking Jesus, are you just going to get rid of all this stuff? Because I don't know, the law of Moses is our lifeblood. It is who we are. It is what we believe. What are you going to do with that? And there may be others who, and they actually acted this way, the Pharisees and this other group called the Sadducees actually threw out the law. They said, well, we, we don't really need it. We just need, we just need grace. We just need to walk through it. But on G, unless Jesus actually takes it, comes in and not only doesn't abolish it, but fulfills it, both those things 
have to happen? Keeping the law and righteousness, how do those things come together? How do we have righteousness and keep the law at once? It has to come through someone else. It has to come through fulfillment. Like I said, there is a deep longing, isn't there? For us to have fulfillment. Whether that's we're longing to be married, longing to have children, longing to find a job, longing for our family to have peace, longing to be rid of some sort of disease. We have longings for fulfillment that are much greater than, gosh, I just need to eat this afternoon. Fulfillment is this deep desire. How does it happen? Jesus' story, and that's how it happens. Jesus comes in to say, he's not contradicting the law. He actually has to meet it head on, and live it. Some people have asked before, why does Jesus not just come and die as a baby for us? I've actually had multiple conversations for people even asking, why does Jesus even have to die? Why can't he just live and be a good teacher? There's a book called Violence, Hospitality, and the Cross, a very interesting book on the violence of the cross, and yet it's hospitality. What is the whole point of the cross? Why do we need that? Many people I've talked to who may not be Christians, and you may be here this morning feeling the same way, is, is, okay, yes, I recognize I have to walk through the nastiness of my own heart, but can't he just show me kind of a good way? Why does he have to die to do this? What's the point? You see, all of redemption weds with what's called history, redemptive history. If we just have history, we don't have anything that's fulfilled. See, Jesus is saying, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Think about the fulfillment longings we have. Every law that you read, every part of the prophets, every part of the Old Testament is pointing to this great crescendo of someone to come. People, their names were even meaning longing, looking for. People in the Old Testament, if you want want a quick, just here's how you read the Old Testament. The law, every point of it, everything spoken, not just the prescriptive Ten Commandments. When it says the law and the prophets, it's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. Even the description of the law, of the prescriptive law and the Ten Commandments is fulfilled by Jesus. He had to come and live because the way he had to live had to be in accordance to every stroke, every iota, every dot. Had to be taken into himself. All the things that we see in our hearts as we march through and say, that is undone, it is disgusting, it is horrible. Jesus fulfills it. He takes it on and it's in him. He fulfills that law. All the things that we say we cannot do, how do we do that? All the things that we think we should relax because we can't handle it, he never relaxed. And yet, what's incredible about Jesus is who are the people that come to him? It's not the Pharisees, it's all the outcasts. Does that not strike you as crazy? That the people who are most rejected in our day and time, and maybe you're here this morning, rejected and even feeling like, gosh, I'm in church again, I'm doing it just because I need to be here. Those kind of feelings you have in your heart? The people that were most attracted to Jesus were the people that did not interact with the law, they interacted with him. And yet, that's all he spoke about, how he fulfilled the law. Does it not show you that maybe we're not 
living out the law the way we should be in our story? Maybe we need somebody else, instead of the law being a mediator between us and other people in our relationships, trying to use the Old Testament and be our own mediator, be our own middle ground person and holding everyone else to it, we need someone that can actually fulfill it because we hold people to a standard that they can't meet and our own story doesn't do the same. That is what Jesus does by fulfilling it. Every event, every ceremony, every person, every stroke of the Old Testament is saying, we need someone to come. We can't fulfill the law. We can't handle it. We can't take it on ourselves. And Jesus comes to accomplish it. How in the world? Because he lives it. Think about this with me. He lives to accomplish everything the law requires. He dies to take on every point where we've failed in the law. And he rises again so that it's sealed and can never be changed. That means that we can live out the law and the prophets with joy. Do you know that The Bible even says that we are those who fulfill this. That the complex story here is that Jesus doesn't just fulfill it and we just say whatever. He actually comes and he fulfills it and he says, now, live in it. The sermon keeps going. This isn't the end of the sermon. You realize this is the beginning of it. And we don't fulfill it because we think we can do it ourselves. We do it because we have a champion who's done it for us. I don't remember if I've told you this story, but I want to tell you this again. I haven't. That in my office, there are four letters. Four letters written. Two of them were written by my father. One when I was, both when I was born. One was written to the Dallas Cowboys This is not going to surprise many of you. Dallas Cowboys head coach Tom Landry at the time. That'll date me a little bit. And the other one was written to Daryl Royal, who was the head coach of the Texas Longhorns. And on both of those, just reading them typed out, of course, no computers. Next to each of those letters is a letter back that Landry actually sent back. Now, I don't know if this would happen today. And Daryl Royal sent back a letter of intent saying, yeah, when, he's, when he graduates, we'll take him. Now you can see where I went with all this, right? I'm, I'm here. But those letters have served to me as a twofold thing. One, as a, a glorious part of my story, but also as a reminder of what, who is my champion? Because for so long, I looked at that portion of my life as something that would fulfill me. I could be my own champion. And now I can look at those letters with a different kind of joy because I know that the fulfillment of those letters, those strokes, are not me. This is not my body and this is not my blood at this table. It is so humbling for me to stand here 
and even serve you communion. Because it is not me keeping and fulfilling and accomplishing the law that gets me to stand behind this table and speak to you. It is only Jesus. This is his table. It's not mine. The fulfillment is here. You get to taste it. You get to hold it. You get to smell it. You get to ingest it. And the only way that the fulfillment of the law gets to be a part of you is if you take it in. It's not enough to come smell these elements. It's not enough to come just kind of look at them, taste them, and take them out of your mouth. Jesus says, you have to ingest it. You have to take me in. It has to transform you from the inside out. That's the only way your righteousness is made righteous is because he gives it to you and puts it in you. I've walked through my heart. I know you have yours. And if you haven't, you need to again so you can be reminded that this is a table of joy. Because we leave this table and we leave these doors and we live that righteousness. We're not leaving in necessarily nastiness anymore. We know the reality and yet we're that loved, we're that cherished, we get to leave and those letters for us, the letters written for us is in his body and blood. Amen and amen. Let's stand together now.